I'm sorry. I, I was sitting here like doing work and I look up and I'm like, it's five after. And I've like, I've like was lost in space and time. No worries. Um, I'm sure what you were doing was more important than um, talking to me about life, bikes and cheese. It actually wasn't. And that's the sad part. <laughs> well, thank you for um, joining uh, today for um uh, another episode of um surgeons lives which has as you um may have spotted as a subtitle of stuff that matters so um of course we will spend a little time talking about career and progression and highlights but as you know already um i'm also interested in the other stuff in people's lives um um to show that surgeons have more to them than just their uh their or skills um so normally I, there are those who say i don't even have that so that's yeah. good that we're talking about the other stuff exactly exactly it should overall it should balance out <laughs> um so so what i normally ask people and i will ask you to do is to um um give us a brief um uh, um, uh, life uh, journey history that starts uh, with the words I was born in. So um, if you're happy to do that, off you go. Yeah, sure. Well, I was uh, I was born uh, about three weeks late. My mom says I'll always be late in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is about uh, two or so hours away from Hershey, where I live now. Uh, I like to tell people I'm going nowhere fast. Um my parents uh, kind of grew up in a middle-class house. My parents' uh, mom was a registered dietitian by training, but for most of my life, she actually was a clinical research coordinator at a place called Mercy Hospital in Scranton. And so she was responsible for uh, a lot of uh, cancer prevention trials, breast cancer prevention trials, prostate cancer prevention trials. And that's probably where my interest in medicine came from because right. we mm. spent a lot of time uh, just hanging out in the office. My parents were both workaholics, and so we would spend a lot of time with them in the office hanging out. They were also exceptionally, um, I'm going to use the word, um, I'm going to use the word, <laughs> they're, cheap, they're, they're cheap, they don't like to spend money. And so uh, we didn't really have like a nanny or a babysitter. So we would just kind of hang out at the office. That was like, that was like free, uh, free babysitting. <laughs> my dad, uh, my dad managed a savings and loan. And so his desire to save money also came from watching people do things poorly, I think with money. So we would spend time at the bank or spend time at, uh, at the uh, hospital. Uh, I uh, stayed home for college. Um Again, I didn't hadn't was not really aware that there was a big world out there because with my parents being very thrifty, we rarely, if ever, took vacations. And when we did, it was usually a day trip in the car to see something local. Yeah. Um, we would maybe occasionally venture to upstate New York and see like the Corning Glass Factory or <laughs> but we didn't really go to cities, we didn't really go to restaurants, we didn't really dine out. It was kind of a very close-knit family in that regard. Did uh, you um I'm just wondering if you ever got as far as the uh, Jello Museum in Batavia in upstate New York. No, we never did the Jello Museum, the Crayola Factory place in Easton, Pennsylvania. Uh, we would come to Hershey to go to Hershey Park. My dad is a huge uh, train enthusiast. He likes trains. He has like model trains. And so we would come to uh, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania and Lancaster to go to the train things here. 
Um, so we would travel around and go to train related places, which as you can imagine, as a child, uh, trains were not our, our thing and children of the eighties were not super into trains. But, so um, I, I don't know the answer to this, but in, in the UK, as you know, there is this, um, um, there is this hobby or passion of train spotting. Um, yes. um, and is there such a thing in the U S yeah, there are definitely people who travel around and, and chase all sorts of trains, whether it's a passenger train or a freight train. My dad was a, a particular fan of mostly, you know, like steam era engines. And so yeah. going to places that would, you know, uh, where you can ride a steam engine yeah, uh, was his thing. Actually, in fact, somewhere in my mid childhood, Scranton actually got a national park called Steamtown National Historic Site. And it is a working, uh, it's a working train. It's a working National Historic Site about trains and train related things. And so we never had to leave town to go enjoy trains ever again. We could just drive down to Steamtown and watch the trains. So uh, are you the second most famous export of Scranton? Uh, <laughs> there's a few other there's a few other famous folks from Scranton. Uh, there is uh, there's a famous basketball coach named PJ Carlissimo who is from Scranton. Okay. Uh, of course, uh, you're referring to uh, one Joseph R. Biden who grew up in Scranton. Uh, gosh, there's um, one of a, a, this guy that I went to high school with is actually currently a very flame, famous uh, playwright right now named Stephen Karam. He like lives in New York and writes plays for on and off Broadway. So. There's a few folks from Scranton. I don't think anybody there knows who I am. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll stick with you as the second <laughs> most famous. You know? I appreciate that. <laughs> True um, or not. You know? <laughs> but, and uh, so, that... um, so when you say you stayed home for college, um, I, I was in Scranton about a year ago, um, and I, I understood, with all due respects to Scranton, why... Joseph R. doesn't live there anymore. Um, uh, I mean, it's a town that is clearly um, industrial and coal and, you know, tough, a tough upbringing, etc. in terms of, it's not Palo Alto, shall we say. Um, um, is, is what, where is the college is in Scranton or nearby? Yeah, no. So uh, I went to the University of Scranton, which is oh. actually, a, it's a Jesuit college. Ah. Um, somebody somebody asked me this the other day and I can't think of who somebody in my high school recognized that uh, I would do well with training from the Jesuits <laughs> and, and they must have, they must have recognized either something within me or had an understanding of how Jesuit education works or maybe both of those things and specifically pointed me towards Jesuit colleges and universities for college. Um, I was I was all set to go to Boston College. I was very excited, uh, and then my dad did what um, a banker does. He sat me down and we just ran the numbers. He got his calculator out, and he said, uh, "Boston College is this much. You have to pay room and board. You got to travel back and forth. Uh, here is one year at Boston College times four years, assuming tuition and room and board don't go up." And he did the same thing for the University of Scranton, who had um, very kindly given me an academic scholarship. And uh, room and board was free, and mom's meatloaf uh, wasn't going to cost me any money, and I needed a 
you know, a car to travel back and forth to campus. Yeah. And uh, the numbers kind of worked out in my favor. And he he reminded me that he was not paying for college. I mean, like this was just a thing that he always said, like, if you want to go, you're paying for it. And he showed me two very different numbers and one of which I could basically afford to pay by working, you know, part time. Um, I had a lawn mowing business growing up and I mowed lawns all through high school and college. I worked a, at a, my neighbor's IT company. I worked at some jobs at a local restaurant. And so like, I was like, Hey, I can, I can pay for this before I even go before I even graduate. So sure. kind of sealed the deal. And then I got the Jesuit education that I wanted um, at the same time. You know, and uh, you're talking to somebody who was brought up in a, in a country where the Jesuits featured quite prominently. Um, and as if I think it was a famous Jesuit, somebody asked him what the educate, how, how they would characterize the educational experience. And he said they were tops on humility. Um, and um, which I, you know, I think is, is a feature, but uh, you know, I lived also in the UK for 20 plus years where university education um, at least at that time, is was essentially paid for. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's not quite that way now, but um, um, and um, you know, the university education was considered to be a right, if you like. Um, where do you where do you land on that? Um, you know, you had the tough love approach, the work ethic, do it yourself, achieve versus the um you know it's you know society should educate their their kids what's your thinking about that boy the answer that's a tough question because yeah. Yeah. because i mean there are certainly people who we all know who have spent time and money and effort to get a degree in something that interested them but that degree is not specifically useful for anybody not themselves yeah. Um, and it's not being used for societal good. And so I, I think that winds up being an exceptionally challenging question, because if you're educating people and you're paying for it, there is probably some amount of a social contract that assumes that you will use that degree to, to help other people. And I don't know if that's necessarily true in all cases. And I think we can also both recognize my, I mean, neither of my siblings went to college. Um, mm. My sister uh, actually didn't even graduate from high school. She has a, a GED. Um, and my brother graduated from high school, but is a, is a tradesman. And he spent his time working as a cabinet maker and a woodworker. And, and so for him, I mean, um, he has a very nice life and a very nice job and is a person who, we both we kind of jokingly both say we both work with our hands for a living we just do very different you know very yeah, different things sure. yeah and so you know so his his need for a um a jesuit education a higher education is was just very different than mine based off of his personal interests and goals and so uh, assuming that somebody would have paid for him to go to school to then go and do the crafts work that he does i would say that yeah i think that everybody is entitled to do something like that whether it's a higher education or, or learning a skill. Yeah, it's, it, as you say, it's an endless debate. And, you know, it, it also, I think it spills over into medical school and residency where, uh, you know, the concept of emerging from your residency 
with uh, you know three four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt is not really a feature of the other side of the Atlantic and um, whereas it's a really common feature here one that I have to say uh, I I don't think is a positive feature for young people starting out in their career I see it dominating their thinking and their career choices and their job choices and absolutely I think that when we when we all finish with equal amounts of debt more or less but we all then wind up with different amounts of ability to repay that debt over the course of time like that that has to influence how you yeah. you know how you think about things and how and where this this hierarchy of you know plastic surgeon neurosurgeon general yes. surgeon and then at the bottom of this list pediatrics and psychiatry and family yeah. practice i mean these are obviously specialties that are that are extremely valuable to the general care of our our populations, but have somehow been relegated to the bottom of the payment heap. Yeah, no, it's um, you know, of course, nobody ever said the world was fair, and so so you you did your time, if you like, in Scranton, and then medical school was next. You'd it was all the seed was already there, and so medical school was where. So, so oddly enough, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was a philosophy major, actually, with a minor in theology. But I did like very much. I like science and I like biology. And so I had a, a double major in biology. And then sort of midway through college, I decided that I was going to try to do medical school. Um, it had sort of been talked about a little bit, um, you know, all along. But I wasn't really sold on it until kind of midway through but I came all the way here to Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I currently work to go to medical school. Um, you know, again, I, I think, John, a lot of a lot of how I thought about going to medical school was based off of, number one, the fact that I had never really traveled anywhere. I mean, I stayed home for college. I We didn't go on vacations. I, I'm not a city person. Um, I, I've learned to love cities. Uh, but I would say that in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm kind of a small town country person, just you know, by default. And so Hershey's campus is, I mean, it's literally in the middle of a cornfield. When I showed up, I was like, I think I've, I think I may have found the spot. And obviously my dad's uh, influence in terms of how are you going to pay for all of this also came into the back of my mind because as an in-state resident going to a, a state university, I mean, I had pretty much found everything that I wanted in this place. You know, it's close, close enough to home that I could travel there. Um, relatively inexpensive and, and no city traffic or city living things for me to worry about. And um, um, tell me you you went away from Pennsylvania after that. Please tell me. <laughs> I made it all the way to Cleveland, Ohio for a year <laughs> for fellowship training. It was just too far west for me. I don't know. It was uh, <laughs> people were too nice. They didn't have that cold Scranton attitude. <laughs> yeah, so I I um I was fortunate enough to um after my seven years of residency, including my research here, I mean I stayed I stayed for residency here at Penn State as well. Yes. Uh, but I made it all the way to Cleveland for fellowship for that one year, uh, and then I then I came back. Um, you know I, I I don't like change. I think you know the hallmark of surgeons is not liking change, and I definitely I definitely see that inside myself. Um. Uh, but I, I found a, a place here to live where I can, I mean, I drive or bike seven minutes to work and uh, I get to see and do all of these really complex things from patients who travel a very far distance. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's 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 unique in that regard, I think, in in, in academic medical centers around the uh, around the U.S. So you um, you have followed and um, no offense intended, of course, um, a, a relatively unusual surgical career um, is is one definition or a career that isn't surgery, at least in part of your life is another definition um or a career that you kind of invented because surgeons are not meant to do it um namely the concept of surgical endoscopy so when you went to your fellowship um um where was what you are now in your mind at that point well i went to cleveland specifically to work with uh, jeff ponsky and with jeff marks yeah um you know, some people also know me as a as a hernia surgeon, yeah. as abdominal wall stuff. I mean, that was that part of my career is completely accidental. It just so happened that the fellowship that I went to also at that time had Yuri Novitsky and Mike Rosen in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so my understanding of hernia surgery was um, unoptimized patients getting external oblique releases with biologic mesh and that not working out so well. Yeah. I actually, I actually said to my family at the time, I am willing to do those awful abdominal wall operations as I understood them. If I get the opportunity to learn flexible endoscopy with Jeff Marks and with Jeff Ponsky, what I would say about the training that I got there, um, especially from Ponsky and Marks is, was less about the technical skill of learning endoscopy and more about the concept that surgeons are uniquely situated to think differently about problems that they see. And I think that what, what um, Jeff and Jeff did was really teach me to, to think well outside the confines of what's in a book, but to stay within the concepts that we would all consider to be surgical concepts. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and that's kind of how I approach, um, you know, problems that I see surgically, whether I'm using my surgical skills or whether I'm using my flexible endoscopic skills, it's really more about the thought process behind it. Um, I, we, I jokingly said at the beginning of this that no one's ever going to accuse me of being a, a technically very good surgeon. But what, what would be devastating to me is if people don't think of me as a thoughtful surgeon. Yes. Um, because I, I try to go to the operating room or the endoscopy suite with, with multiple different plans of how I envision the patient's problem being managed with the skills that I have. So, so the reason I'm, um, you know, it's a, it's a subject that's fascinated me, um, the concept of surgical endoscopy and the fact that, um, you know, at the time you, you know, you, you just about covered in the, in the four names that you gave me, you know, the world of surgical endoscopy and abdominal wall reconstruction in one fell swoop in a year, which was fantastic, of course. But the, the, to me, the disappointing thing is that X years down the line, um, you know, the, the, the surgical endoscopist remains, the true surgical endoscopist, interventional surgical endoscopy, remains a fairly rare um person and um 
You know, I'm wondering what you think about that. I mean, I, I do recall you telling me that, you know, when you started um, on faculty in Hershey, you know, you, they literally wouldn't let you in the endoscopy suite. Um, and And while, you know, I think that may not be quite the way it is today, I still see it not far off that, actually. Um, because interventional endoscopy, never mind done by surgeons, but interventional endoscopy remains rare, you know, in compared to the, the you know, the commodity uh, endoscopy world. Um, where, where do you think oh, that's all happening and why? Yeah, you know, it... It's a it's a challenging question, and, and like most things, um, academic sort well, like most things medical, all politics are local, yeah. And there are definitely some places where surgical endoscopists are are welcomed um, with open arms, and there are some places where there's you know a lot of headbutting initially. Um, there are some places some of my trainees have never really been able to utilize. The endoscopic skills that they that they received because they went to a place yeah. and and were were you know were told that they were not allowed to use those skills and then were not supported by their co-surgeons or their surgical bosses to say no like this is going to be the way um, that it is um, you know I, I initially had a um, I had a good relationship with some of the GI faculty but the leadership of the division at the time was simply not interested in me doing some of the skills, you know, that I, that I had. And um, when a wall goes up immediately without any discussion of like, well, what, like, what are the skills you have and what are you bringing to the table? You know, it certainly becomes, um, you know, challenging. And, and it's interesting because that relationship has evolved over the course of time. Yeah. You know, I think a good example is, is how we manage our gastric bypass patients who have common bile duct stones. Um, you know, certainly there are methods to do that with uh, sort of traditional uh, GI endoscopic principles, but I do ERCP and I'm a surgeon. And so for our GI team to say, look, we can, we can do a, a two hour double balloon ERCP on this person and, and spend a huge block in the endo unit having a 50% success rate, mm -hmm. or you could just handle this. And we don't care if you do the, that ERCP in the operating room. And so, you know, there were times where it was very convenient for me to be an endoscopist and other times where it was not. And, and as you pointed out, I was not given any block time in the endo unit for several years. And the only reason, and I was not allowed to use the scopes that they had in the unit for many years. The only reason that I was successful was that my chairman at the time said, I have hired you to do this job. Like I am making this a reality in this department. And so just tell me what you need to be successful and we will simply buy those tools in the operating room. And so, you know, so I had scopes and I had towers and I had at the time uh, 22 ORs available for me as endoscopy units. And so I, I had more stuff. I had more scopes and more rooms than anybody else in the hospital as an endoscopist. And so I could kind of outcompete, as it were, for some of the things that I wanted to do. It's still a balancing act, though, isn't it? For because the, the big, um, the big question or criticism is, you know, we endoscope people every day of the week, whereas you don't, you know, a surgical endoscopist, you know, you only endoscope people two days a week or whatever it might be, and you know, it's it's a, 
it's not an argument that has a lot of depth to it, but it does have a kernel of truth to it um, sure. and, and has to be addressed. To me, the issue is, well, if that is the case, you know, if that's your if that's your metric, then how come all the people who do endoscopies five days a week don't do any intervention? You know, um, I I and and many other folks who are surgical endoscopists, uh, I mean, I can't argue with that. That 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 my GI colleagues do more scopes than I do and spend more time doing scopes than I do. That's just a reality. I I also do surgeries, um, but but I think that what we all care about is is a skills-based and a competency-based practice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are also things that I have and come to the table with that no gastroenterologist will really ever, I think, get just by nature of surgical training. And, and some of those, you know, as, as I describe it to my trainees, the thing that I can do is have an understanding of normal anatomy and abnormal anatomy and surgical anatomy and abnormal surgical anatomy and then this really far off thing here, which is the abnormally abnormal surgical anatomy. You know, there are common things that go wrong with operations, but there are also uncommon things that go wrong. And it's it's really those areas where as a surgeon, I, I excel. And that's kind of yeah. the area of surgical things that I have kind of gravitated uh, gravitated towards. I think I think surgeons are also uniquely situated to back up and manage their own complications, mm -hmm. which which is interesting because, you know, some people argue, oh, that makes you much more aggressive as an endoscopist. But I also realize that when I have a complication of an endoscopy that I've got to go to M&M and I've got to stand up there and mm -hmm. present, why was I doing an, an endoscopic sleeve on somebody who could have just gotten a regular old gastric bypass or a gastric sleeve surgery? Why am I doing it endoscopically? And, and you know, why did I have a complication of bleeding? And, and you know, so there's there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of that as well that that surgical oversight and the surgical way of thinking about um, endoscopy come comes into play. So you know I don't want to spend all of our time talking about this, but just to sort of finish off on this, it, clearly the progression of um, surgical endoscopy has been slower than many people would have anticipated a number of years ago. Um, but where do you think it's going to be in 10 or 15 years from now? Do you think it'll continue to be slow or is it about to accelerate? What, what's your guess? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've seen acceleration over the last several years. You know, the history of endoscopy has been the history of surgeons to help co-invent operations. Mm -hmm. And then other people saying, well, that's not really surgery. Let somebody else do it, right? I mean, even things as simple as polypectomies, where, you know, you've got Shinja and Wolf learning colonoscopy, learning polypectomy techniques, yeah. and then other surgeons saying, well, that's not really a surgery, so let somebody else do it. And, 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 and now it's the realm of gastroenterology and less the realm in many ways of surgery. I, I hope that we've learned our lessons in that regard. And I think that things like endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty are an area that are going to bring this to the forefront because you have skilled gastroenterologists who want to do this, but are not experts in bariatric and metabolic disease. And you've got surgeons who are experts in metabolic and bariatric disease, but who need to get the skill set to do this operation, which is going to take off. And if, if we don't figure it out, we're going to have bad outcomes one way or the other, because people are going to get the operation not in the confines of a bariatric program, or they're going to be in a bariatric program and have a surgeon who probably needs to be better trained to do it. And it's going to fail if we don't do it right. 
it, it, you know, theoretically, it should be symbiotic, and hopefully it will be um, in, in due course. So, so let's pivot. Um, uh, I think I'm correct in saying you're the only surgeon who lists that I know um, who lists cheese as a hobby. I mean, obviously, you also list um, cycling as a hobby, which is an excellent thing, bearing in mind the first hobby um i think you need the cycling to go with the cheese um it is my, it is my main motivation to cycle in fact yes <laughs> exactly and obviously there's um there's some musical interest um, um hanging on the wall behind you um that's true etc but um as you know as a legendary world traveler um from all the way from scranton to hershey and with a year in cleveland uh, how come the cheese? Where did that come from? Well, so I will say there is at least one other uh, cheese person that I can definitely point a finger to, which is, uh, you may know, Barbara Bass. Yes, yes. Barbara Barbara is not only a cheese person, but Barbara is um, is years ahead of me in terms of her cheese making capabilities. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, so Barbara is a fun person to know in that regard. Um you know, the che John, the cheese came from, um, it, it's a little bit of a long story, but ultimately my wife told me that I was boring and that I needed a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I, I went back and thought about all the other hobbies that I had had over the course of time, uh, uh, golfing and other things. And uh, they just, they just, they didn't have the appeal that they used to have. And um, the, uh, I love, um, I, 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 I like cheese. I mean, I love cheese, but I, I, I like the concept of it. And I was driving to work one day and I heard um, I heard this thing on national public radio about people who were getting a degree in uh, cheese making. They were getting this degree called a certified cheese professional degree from the ACS. Uh, that's the American Cheese Society. I was going to say not the American College yeah. of Surgeons, no. And so I thought to myself, boy, wouldn't this be wouldn't this be funny? I, you you probably have picked up that I'm a little bit of a quirky person. Wouldn't it be funny if on my title slides, I had, you know, MD, FACS, FASGE, CCP, Certified Cheese Professional. I thought, honestly, as a joke, for the guy in the back of the room who's paying attention and is on his phone is like, like, does this dude make cheese? Is that what that means? <laughs> I thought that would be funny. And so I looked up the criteria for how to do this. And you've got to have a high school diploma, which I have. Okay. And you have to pass a, a multiple choice test on cheese making. And I thought, like, I can buy a book. I can read. Yeah. It's a multiple choice test. I'm going to guess that the metrics on this test are such that I could probably, I could probably take it now and do okay. But the thing that you needed was 2,000 hours of hands-on cheese making experience, oh, wow. like experience like in the cheese industry, right? Yeah. So I, so I said to myself, I'm going to do this. This is, I'm going to do it on a lark. I'll make cheese. It'll be fun. So I got books on cheese making and I was buying milk and I live, Hershey built his company here because it's dairy yeah. territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's milk here. And so there's lots of cows. And so getting cow, cow milk and goat's milk and sheep's milk is very easy in the area. So I, every weekend I was making cheese, lots of cheese. And my wife who told me that I was boring and needed this hobby ultimately came to me and said, you've got to stop doing this. <laughs> like the house smells like whey and cooking milk. Our refrigerator is filled with cheeses. Like we're running out of places for it. We're giving it away. 
my proposal was to build a cheese cave in the basement to start, you know, storing and aging the cheeses. Her proposal was that I find another hobby or do something different. <laughs> um, ultimately, I actually wound up taking a part-time job. This is true. Um, while I was working as a surgeon, I got a part-time job at a local creamery. And I was I was going there on my academic days. Again, I rationalize this because I was pursuing a higher degree, right? That of course. Academic yes, pursuit. Yes. I'm going to get a certified cheese making degree. Mm -hmm. This is an academic pursuit. And again, the story of me going there for that job interview was kind of funny as well, because I showed up in a suit and a, suit and a tie and I, I printed out my CV and I took it with me. And the guy there was like, wait, so you don't want money? And I was like, I don't need money, man. I just need cheese making opportunities. <laughs> and, and, and to his credit, he said, "Like this is bizarre." Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but I said, "I sold John. I sold him on all the points." Okay, I can I can be sterile for hours on at an end. I can put a beard cover on. You know, like I understand the basics of chemistry and proteins and enzymes and and bacteria, and I understand contaminations. Like I can do this pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, but he, the guy who owns the creamery actually um, used to be a Pfizer drug rep in a previous life. And he quit his job and he went to culinary school and he met his wife who used to be a computer programmer and they got married and they opened up this creamery. And so like they have this other story to their life. And he was like, I get it. So you have the, I don't want to call it a job. You You have the position. And they were kind enough to understand that there may be days where I had to leave early because I got called back to work or I may just said I was going to be there and just didn't show up. They were like, we don't care. We're not paying you. You're yeah. extra help if you show up. And so I would get there early and I would bring in the milk with them. Um, we would pasteurize it. We would make mozzarella and we would make ricotta and we would, you know, I'd go to the aging room and I would, you know, do all of the all of the love and attention that it takes to age, you know, some of the aged cheeses that they make. And I was picking up all of these hours, but then I got really busy being a surgeon and I had to kind of give it up. And so I've never gotten my 2000 hours, unfortunately, and I do not have my cheese making degree. Oh, that's very disappointing. Um, uh, after all of that excitement, I was expecting you to, you know, there would be a, an amazing ceremony where you, this was bestowed upon you, you know, um, it remains, it remains a goal. And if I ever take a sabbatical, uh, in my career, that's what I'm going to do when I, when I eventually retire, uh, that, that is going to be item number one on the list. Cause it's only 2000 hours. I mean, that's in the yeah. grand scheme of a surgeon's, you know, workload and, and work life. That's not a lot of time at the end of the day. So I can do it. I got to tell you um, my uh, boring story. And um, when I was in Rochester, I had the privilege of becoming good friends with the late Cy Schwartz, who was in the next door office to me. And um, Cy, you know, was well known, you know, for the book and uh, uh, being president of almost every organization that he ever entered. But his wife said to him one day, you know, Sai, you're boring. Um, you need a hobby. Um, and he said to her, I, I don't have time to find a hobby. Please find one for me. <laughs> so she went and wandered around town one day, and this is all in Rochester, and um, wandered into a second-hand bookstore and found us uh, a book on um, early American maps. 
and brought it home to him and said, there you go, Sai, that's your hobby. So the difference between, you know, you and Sai Schwartz is that you basically failed in your hobby, whereas Sai uh, became an advisor to Congress and the Smithsonian Institute has written multiple textbooks on early American mapping and ended up with a huge... And I, I said to him one day, you know, Sai... You're such a loser, you know. I mean, just you know, let everybody else have a chance, would you? <laughs> you know? I have, I have only failed so far. This remains yes, exactly. This remains. Now I have a new inspiration. Um, you know, John, that's actually similar to how Jeff Ponsky became, um, you know, a cowboy. I mean, he midway through his life and his career fell in love with uh, horses and with the rodeo. And yeah. began began riding and taking lessons, and then built a house with a farm and got horses. And so he he's passionate about horses. But I think it all started with Jackie saying, like, "Hey, you're boring, and like you need like a like you need something to do." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So where did so I, I mean I guess as you, you've said to me that as you in your travels now you spend a good amount of time smuggling illicit cheeses back into the United States. Um, I mean, you. Where is your favorite cheese destination? So uh, I haven't found it yet. I'm going to say, and I say that because, like, cheese to me is this uh, is this amazing concept. In that, um, you can take four ingredients: yeah, milk, salt, enzymes and some bacteria, some microorganism. And you can come up with 14 or 1500 different things that, that currently exist around the world, yeah? Mm -hmm. And so, so just like wine has a, a terroir, you know, the, the notion that the place that this is from is important. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's cheese as well. The milk, and the grass, all, yeah. all all influenced by the local area. The microorganisms of the area are very local, and how people rearrange and manage those things is all is all sort of mystical and magical, you know. But at the same time, um, there is this uh, there's science to it, right? This is protein chemistry. Yes. Like if we talk about just the protein chemistry. You can understand how proteins coagulate. I mean, it's blood. It's blood coagulation properties. Um, it's a it's a matrix. It's a thrombus. And and how you utilize the chemistry, but couple it with this magical thing that happens as I mean, as food slowly deteriorates. I mean, it's controlled spoilage. Yeah. 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 Is 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 a is a miracle that this ever. That someone figured it out, but it's even more miraculous that you can do it in almost infinite number of ways. And so I haven't found the ideal cheese destination yet because there are people all over the world who do this to varying degrees. But I, I think that it's undeniable that, you know, that Europe is obviously the center of all of this. And so, you know, traveling around places like France and, and Belgium and, and going to visit, you know, the towns where these things come from, right? I was visiting my friend Philip Moisums, who is a European uh, hernia surgeon. Philip lives in Ghent, and uh, we sometimes fly into Amsterdam. And when you travel from Amsterdam down to Ghent, mm -hmm. you get to pass Hauda, yeah, as we would say at Gouda, yeah, yeah. 
and you stop in the town of 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 Hauda, and it's where it's where the cheese comes from. Like they make it in this mm-hmm. area, yeah. And so you can see all of this. Like we think of it as one kind of cheese. You know, American cheese culture, yeah. I would say, is not very good. You think of Gouda as one style of cheese, but you get to Gouda and you realize that, like, no, this is a concept, and within yep. that concept are all of these various, you know, themes upon the main concept. And so that the branches of these trees suddenly become very, very broad and understanding any one of those branches is, is you could, you could spend, you know, your entire life just walking down one of the branches of that cheese family. So what's in your fridge today? Uh, I have, uh, I have probably 30 different kinds of cheese in the fridge right now. Because I, yeah, I, well, I just got back from uh, Sages in Montreal and I spent yeah. some time wandering around, you know, Montreal with its obvious French influences mm-hmm. has a lot of really amazing kind of local cheeses, which I'm just beginning to explore. But also, you know, U.S. import laws are such that, um, you know, you if you're going to use unpasteurized or what we would call raw milk to make cheese in the U.S., it has to be aged beyond a certain number of days, which is uh, usually about 90 days before you can sell it. And so those laws don't exist in in Canada and they don't exist in Europe either. And so when I was in the U when I was, I was in London uh, earlier this year at a meeting and came back with a suitcase full of stuff that uh, passes the TSA inspection points, but uh, probably would not be available for commercial sale otherwise. Yeah. But um, you know, current, uh, current interesting favorites that are in the fridge. I found this cheese in London, which I, again, the best part about going to a, a good cheese shop is just saying, Show me some things that I may have never seen, you yeah. know, before. I found this cheese called Pecorino de Fossil, fossilized Pecorino. Yeah. And so I, I did a little a little bit of reading about this. They basically just take it and they stick it in a cave and they ignore it. I mean, they oh, wow. and it literally the outside literally fossilizes. It turns to rock, and the inside undergoes what I can only describe as a I mean, it's not even really a controlled rotting. It essentially is is rotting. And so, you know, some of the some of the funkiest flavors that you get in cheeses, people describe as, you know, stinky feet. Yeah. A, yeah, a yeah. rotting corpse smell. I mean, this yeah, has all yeah. this has all of those things. <laughs> but you put it in your mouth and all of a sudden all of those glutamic acid receptors in your mouth go absolutely crazy. And the reward centers of your brain light up, and it's it's really quite spectacular. It's it's not for everybody, but it's really no. really amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna be uh, just as a last comment about the cheese. I'm assuming that you are um, able to recite word for word the uh, Monty Python's cheese sketch. <laughs> I haven't in a long time, but it is a favorite. Yep, for sure. <laughs> so the other half of this, of course, is you know having seen pictures of you wearing an unnerving amount of spandex um, uh, on um, bikes with um, uh, shoes that mean you can't actually walk without that un- <clears throat> without that uh, wow. unmistakable walk of strange people who have got off a bike. Um, yes. So <laughs> where did that come from? You, you are familiar with the somewhat pejorative term mammal? Yes. It's a British, it's actually a British term, but uh, for those maybe who don't know, it's a middle-aged man in Lycra. So I guess I would yeah. describe myself as a mammal. Yeah. Um, you know, I owe the cycling to um, a person named Christina Frangu. 
people know Christina because she is one of the main um, writers for General Surgery News. Mm -hmm. um, she 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 does that. that. That's her side gig. She is an award winning Canadian long form journalist. But I um, I met her through General Surgery News, where I do some editorial work, and I you know they ask me opinion on what what should we talk about at meetings. <clears throat> and she and I were sitting down um, in Nashville. I remember I remember the conversation because we were having some sushi in Nashville, and we were talking about the Sages meeting and what stories I thought might be valuable for the for her yeah. to cover. And she asked me like you know what do you do for a hobby? And this was actually. Um, around the same time that I found cheese and you know she told me about her love for cycling and and she told me that for whatever reason some of the things that she saw in me or recognized she said I think that you would like this and so I thought about it for a while and then um I got you know a pretty simple you know not a road bike just a, a regular bike that I hadn't had in years and I immediately understood everything that she had told me about cycling to be true <laughs> And so then just like every other person who kind of falls in love with cycling, we came upon the N plus one rule where N is the number of bikes you currently own and N plus one is the number of bikes that you should actually own. And so then I just started adding additional bikes to the collection. And so um, it, is, uh, it is a thing that I think about every day, which is odd because usually, again, before I found this, I would think about getting up, going to work, doing good surgery, writing some papers, you know, hanging out with my family, cooking, and then going back and doing it all over again. And I yeah. definitely find myself waking up in the morning thinking, you know, boy, I hope, I hope my cases go well today so that I can get out when there's still a little bit of, you know, of sunlight to chase at the end. But, but then I figured out you can get nighttime cycling gear. And so I can, yeah. I can cycle. What What's more dangerous than road cycling, road cycling at night. Yeah, exactly. In the country. <laughs> Yeah, so, so well, I, it's it's the just, uh, answer to that famous question, you know, when the the um, waiter says, um, you know, did you forget the tip? And the answer is, wear white at night. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so n plus one. So how many is n plus one now? Uh, I have uh, eight bikes currently. Okay, that's uh, that's beginning. That's a beginning. Yeah, it's a good yeah. beginning. It's a little worrying. It's a little worrying. And is it all on the road or do you fling yourself off mountains? So I don't have a mountain bike yet. That'll be the next uh, purchase. I do have a, a nice gravel bike, which you can do a little bit of mountain biking with. But it's this um, this area of the country has very nice um, country roads for road cycling. Yeah. But it also has a lot of, um, you know, rail to trails and a lot of paths that are not uh, not good for a road bike either. Um, I bought an electric bike so that I can actually go to cycle to work. And when I get there, not be, you know, completely sweaty and disgusting, which, uh, I, yeah. I, I don't, I, I like the idea of cycling to work. It's great for the environment. It's good for me, but getting to work and being already drenched in sweat is not, yeah. that's not my idea of a good time. So I actually, um, I actually bought an electric bike, um, two weeks ago. Um, um, you know, uh, it's a, it's a. Uh, bike with suspension back and front from yep. uh, from my road bike but um and uh but i was just saying to my wife last week that um a, a law that i would like to see introduced is that cyclists 
should all have a rear view mirror because it's amazing the number of cyclists who cycle along you know oblivious of the rest of the world um and you know i have one of those little ones on the end of the handlebar that you can just and it's it's the biggest safety thing that i uh, can think of knowing what's going on behind you it, it really should be a requirement in my opinion unfortunately many cyclists are their own worst yeah enemy, you yeah, know exactly um, it, nobody hates a cyclist being on the road as much as a person driving a car with bikes on top of it. I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking to me how we treat each other and being aware that there is someone coming up behind you or that there is a car behind you obviously is not only good for your own safety, but obviously it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's sure. just respectful of the other people who are on the road, you know? So Our, when you're done, um, uh, uh, how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered? Um, uh, you know, Mike Rosen one time told me, <laughs> it's actually funny. I, I sometimes think about this, uh, in, in his very classic kind of deep voice, he said to him, all the best operations have already been given names. And he was encouraging me to stop making things up as I was going along. And, and while I certainly understand that, I, I think the main thing that I understand about surgery is that if you understand all of the rules of surgical principles, you can break most of them with a fair bit of impunity because you understand the rules. Um, it's like getting good at playing poker. You know, there are definitely some hands in poker that you might early on in your career lay down, yeah. but as you get better at it, you realize you're not really playing the cards, you're playing the opponent. And, and so, yeah. um, and so what I hope that people understand about my career is that I wasn't willing to accept that this is the way that we do things and that there are other potential ways, you know, to do it. And if you're, if you're willing to bend some of the rules, but understand those rules while you're breaking them, I think that you can really do a lot of good for, you know, for patients and for people. Um, you know, and, and I think that, I, I mean, right now, maybe the two things that people know me for are um, endoscopically managing holes in the GI tract, right? Yeah. Which I mean, I'm I'm certainly not the first, and I'm not the only person sure. to do it. But I I think that what we sort of laid out and what I try to speak about is how how we followed surgical principles and how we approach it in a very logical fashion. This is not just go in and put a clip on something. This is to think about the hole in the confines of the patient's entire yeah. medical condition and to bring a variety of different tools to bear. You know, the second is, um, you know, the, our, our peristomal hernia surgery, which again, I mean, I didn't, I didn't invent anything. This is, I, I jokingly say, this is like Reese's peanut butter cups. It's some peanut butter and some chocolate put together. You know, I took, I took a tar operation that Novitsky sort of pioneered. And I, I took the modified sugar baker operation. And I said, Hey, like these just seem to go together. And can we, can we do this in a fashion that, that works? And that and that helps people, and I, I I think that the results that are coming out suggest that you know mm -hmm. that random you know circumstance you know it, it it was it was a complete accident that it happened. It was just my willingness and my brain kind of being open to the fact that it's okay to do things new and differently. That that made me say, let's try this out. Any big uh, bucket list items? You know, it's really weird. I don't I don't really think like that. Um, 
most of my life, my surgical career and my personal life is just me stumbling into things and, and having a really good time being in the moment. Um, you know, as you said, I get to travel all over the world. And as a guy who grew up in Scranton and never really went anywhere, I mean, I didn't fly on an airplane until I was 21. Wow. I, I never, I mean, never in my career could I have envisioned um, being able to go to all of the places that I get to go. And when I go there, I don't really plan things. I just go and I say, like, I'm here and let's just go and have like the best possible time that we can have, you know? Um, I, in Sages last week, I went and I said, hey, it's like tomorrow's going to be cold but sunny. And I'm going to go cycling. And I went cycling with my friend Kate. And we realized that you can actually cycle on the F1 course in Montreal. It's open. Yeah. You can just take your bike on it. And so I cycled the entire F1 course. I mean, <laughs> you can take it down the pits. I've got a great picture of me crossing the finish line. I mean, like, I didn't plan that, but, but for me, it's those moments where like, if I had planned something like that and it didn't work out, I would have felt bad. Or even if it worked out, I think I would have built it up to something that it was never going to be. But the fact that I stumbled into it was great. And so I, I mostly stumble my way through life and have a really good time doing it. And why not? So let me finish by um, asking you a series of quickie questions that are are well known to people uh, there are no correct answers as in the fact that i know what the correct answer is <laughs> um you don't get a chance to think about it um and you just have to give me your answers you ready ready okay coke or pepsi coke coke zero <laughs> burger king or mcdonald's uh mcdonald's pc or mac pc cats or dogs dogs yankees or red sox I'm a National League fan. It's the Phillies. But if you made me pick, uh, I'd go with the Red Sox. Home or away? Home or away? I don't understand. You don't get to understand. You oh. just get to choose. Home. <laughs> well, listen, Eric, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure the assembled millions of the audience, um, uh, both of them will enjoy it as well. Um, it'll come out in a few weeks. Um, uh, you know, I've, I try to stay ahead with the interviews and um, it'll be on the YouTube channel, Surgeons Lives. Um, there are th the first three are out at the moment and I think they're all very different um and yours will be different and very enjoyable and it's also on the podcast channel so i really appreciate it and um uh, i look forward to um talking to you again and continuing the conversation about um endoscopy cheese and bikes well, john thanks for having me i hope this is not the last one this is great then great i appreciate it exactly all right